Please welcome Dr. Michael Wilkes. Thanks. It, uh it's quite a pleasure and an honor to be here. Um, you'll see that I'm the, the low guy in the totem pole when you hear uh, who's sitting next to me. It, it is impressive that you all came out uh, on a Wednesday night to hear about end of life uh, and uh, a good death. Uh, I hope that you'll leave here not, not clamoring to die, but uh, w with some ideas uh, about uh, how you can take steps to assure that your, your, uh, you and your loved ones uh, can uh, uh, protect uh, the way uh, you want things to go. Tonight we'll, we'll focus primarily uh, on a side of medicine that, that is really the art of medicine. Um, the, uh, the art of medicine encompasses uh, the science but is much broader than that. Uh, we will talk uh, at times about uncertainty, um, about decision making, um, about communication, about culture, uh, both the culture of you, the patients, uh, the culture of the families, but also the culture of medicine. And medicine has its own culture and its own rituals and its own language, uh, et cetera. And how do we reconcile the culture of medicine with, with the culture of our community? We'll talk a, a bit about religion. Um, we'll talk about ethics, um, specifically issues related to autonomy. And then uh, it is uh, ironic that my last point is that we will also talk a little bit about knowledge. Um, and uh, when we talk about physicians, um, we often forget that uh, you know, it, it is knowledge that we assume comes first, but it, when it comes to end-of-life care, I think you'll hear tonight that uh, we're often lacking in areas that are vital to taking care of people at the end of life. I'd like to introduce to you two amazing uh, women. Uh, it is a true honor to be sitting next to them. I'll start just by proximity. Uh, Susan Stone, uh, I've known for a long time. Susan is the Director of Palliative Care at L.A. County uh, USC Medical Center. She's also an Associate Professor of Clinical Emergency Medicine and Internal Medicine. Susan graduated uh, from the University of Maryland School of Medicine. She obtained a master's degree in public health from UC Berkeley and completed her residency uh, with me, actually, um, uh, at uh, New York University. After completion of her residency, Susan joined the faculty at the University of Colorado in Denver, founded a bit uh, chilly, and returned home here to Southern California, where she joined the faculty at the Keck School of Medicine as a full-time member of the Department of Emergency Medicine. In that capacity, she ran a large emergency medicine residency training program before she uh, ch changed her focus uh, a bit to focus on palliative care. In 2006, Susan conceptualized and developed a successful and award-winning palliative care service at L.A. County uh, and the USC uh, Medical Center. To date, the service has provided direct patient care to over 1,400 culturally diverse patients. Susan's a leader in educating both students and practicing health care providers in the field of palliative care. Her innovative palliative care program has received awards from the National Association of uh, Public Hospitals, the American Society of Aging, the American Hospital Association, and Los Angeles Department of Health Services. Equally impressive is Dr. Betty Farrell. Betty uh, has been uh, a, a little bit on a different trajectory. Betty is, is trained originally as a nurse. She has a doctorate. Uh, she's worked for most of her years in oncology or cancer nursing, that is for 31 years. 
During those 31 years, she's focused her clinical expertise and more recently her research in the areas of pain management, quality of life, and palliative care. Dr. Farrell is a research scientist at the City of Hope National Medical Center. She is a fellow of the American Academy of Nursing. She's a principal investigator, meaning the head honcho, of a study funded by the National Cancer Institute on Barriers to Pain and Fatigue Management. She's also the PI, or principal investigator, of a large end-of-life nursing education consortium. She's a member of the National Cancer Policy Forum. She has authored five books, one of which uh, she sent to the Obama uh, office, called The Nature of Suffering. Um, <laughs> the Nature of Suffering and the Goals of Nursing. It was published in 2008. Dr. Farrell also has a master's degree in theology, ethics, and culture from Claremont Graduate University. So it's an honor to be here if any of you are planning on dying in the near future. These are the two people <laughs> I can assure you, you want uh, by your side. Um, I think we'll start this evening um, with um, a series of questions uh, from me. Um, we'll then turn our attention to you and allow you to ask uh, the uh, uh, incredibly knowledgeable uh, women on my left, your right, uh, questions of your own. My first question, uh, and we'll start with Susan and then we'll, we'll alternate. My first question, uh, Susan, um, uh, and I'll also ask you, Betty, is, is what is a good life? How do we determine uh, what is a good life? And as, as we say in medicine, if we deviate from that, what's the gold standard against which we want to measure uh, death? Well, I want to first say that I'm very excited that we're talking about a good death. And um, I think a, a good death is really dependent on who we are as people, isn't it? How many of you have really thought about what would be your ultimate perfect death? Has anybody here? Are there martinis involved? <laughs> are you at the beach? I've thought about mine. And so I think it really depends who we are and where we come from. And, and Betty will address some of those issues. But I think first, a good death means that you're peaceful, you're comfortable, you've got an expert pain management, symptom management. Um, we know in the 1990s, investigators started looking at this issue, the big D word that was taboo in the house of medicine, death. And here we are, how exciting that we're actually talking about death in public without dark sunglasses on today. Mm -hmm. So they found that doctors, and this is going to shock you right out of your seats, that we didn't do such a good job of treating pain, even in patients who are dying, patients with cancer. And shame on us. And part of that was our education. So I think that we now understand that a, somebody who's in the process in their last months, year, days, minutes, we must treat their pain aggressively, let them be peaceful, if they have depression, we need to address that um, so that they can relax and attend to the other steps that happen when someone dies. So, so, so Betty, perhaps you can uh, carry on. Um, we've heard about uh, the physical pain and, and, and peace. Um, are there other issues that are important that help us conceive what a good death is? Sure. Uh, in much of our training with nurses around the country and around the world, we're often asked this question, you know, what is a good death? And that seems like a hard thing to define until I always ask people the question, 
if you or someone you love is dying, what would you want for them? And everyone, it's very clear, if someone I love is dying, um, I would want them to be comfortable, so physical issues are very important. Um, psychologically, I would not want them to be fearful. I would not want them to be anxious or depressed. Um, socially, if someone I love is dying, it's not a medical event. It's a life event. It's a human event. And so I would want to know that I and other people they love are with them. Uh, and finally, spiritually. Um, and we use the term spiritual care in end-of-life care in the most the broadest sense. It is not just one's religion. For many people, having uh, a spiritual care provider present or having rituals such as prayer or blessing are important. Um, but for other people, uh, the spiritual aspect of end-of-life care, many patients say, what I'd like to do more than anything in the world is, could you just roll me out of this ICU and let me feel the sun on my face? Um, to connect with the world is, is really good end-of-life care. So I think the take-home message is it's incredibly uh, complex in some ways, incredibly simple in others, but what is also very real is that if we went around the room tonight and asked every one of you what would be important to you if you or someone you love was dying, we would hear a different story from each person. And so what we should learn from that is how will we know how to provide good end-of-life care unless we take the time to ask? So we uh, are in uh, the country that spends more on health care than any other country uh, in the world. In fact, almost twice as much as, as the number two country. We also are in a country where uh, we have federal health insurance for the elderly, uh, yet we spend 30% of the entire Medicare budget 30% is spent in the last 30 days of someone's life. My question to you is, is given what you've defined for us as a good death, being pain-free, peace, comfortable, socially connected, spiritually whole, however you define that, what are the barriers? Why are we not getting to that goal? Why don't we start with you, Betty? Sure. I think part of this is really the history of where we are in time. Um, in not so terribly long ago, you know, in the lives of for some of us, or certainly our parents or grandparents, if someone became ill, they either got well pretty quickly or they died. Um, and somewhere along the way, in really just the last few decades, we invented intensive care units and very high-powered antibiotics and renal dialysis and the ability to transplant organs. And along the way, over those decades, we as a society have come to believe that death is avoidable, that if we just go to the best hospital and have the best doctor and the best drugs, then surely um, we can keep living. And so this happens all the time. People come to our hospital and we as professionals try to talk with families about oh, this must be very difficult seeing you know, your grandmother who you love dearly die and they look at you and say, are you kidding? You know, she's not dying. You know, <laughs> you always pull her out. Um, in fact, she's outlived three doctors. Um, so, <laughs> so we have created a technological system in a society that believes that all illness can be conquered. And so we have come to believe that success always means the absence of disease, that healing always means that we have rid the body, and therefore death is a failure, something to be avoided. And that is has resulted in this situation that really is a moral crisis. We in this country are spending 30% of our health care dollars 
on the last months of life, but what we need to remember is what are we not able to pay for? The same hospital whose ICUs are full of people whose lives are being prolonged um, and who are receiving very futile care are the same hospitals that four floors below have emergency departments that can't begin to admit women and children and people who need basic health care. So this is a huge public health crisis, our failure to have logical ways to care for people at the end of life. Excellent. Susan? This is a day-to-day -day frustration in my practice. Um, you look at people are going bankrupt just trying to pay for those services in those days or weeks previous to death, and it's sort of the elephant in the room. I know the primary doctor that's taking care of the patient knows, and we can't all come together and talk about it. And often what happens is we talk about it and the patient may say, hey, I don't want all of this. I want to go home. I want to be at home and die there. So it's, there's a disconnect between this intensive care that we provide that's very costly and what the patient's actual true goals are, what they want. I think there's also another problem in the house of medicine in that our young doctors have for decades been taught that no one dies on your watch. I remember being a medical student and the fear of God imparted on me that no one will die tonight in the surgical ICU or you will when I'm done with you in the morning. And so the restless nights that it's beaten into you and, and so that's been a huge barrier. Excellent. You know, to, to shift gears a little bit, um, it is easy for us to talk about the medical profession and some of these barriers. It, 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 they are important and need to be surmounted, but it is also important to, to focus on, on, on you, the public. So my question uh, for you, Susan, um, is what can we do, uh, members of the public, to help protect ourselves uh, so that we have a reasonable certainty uh, of getting to where we want to be at the end of our lives? That is a great question, and I think that um, I would like to share one personal experience first. And sometimes it's very hard to figure out where you're going to be and how you would want to proceed if your life was ending. And um, I'm a cancer survivor, so I've had to face this, and it was very clear to me as I kissed the cheek of death a few times how I wanted to live my life and how I would want the last days to be. I kind of uh, lucked out, as you would say. And um, I think that's really hard when you're sitting there healthy. But I think the most important thing for you to do is figure out what your goals are in life and talk to everybody. Talk to your primary doctor, husband, partner, children. Talk, talk, talk about what you would want and what you wouldn't want so that it's not that final moment in the emergency department when it's critical mass and any of you have been in the emergency department with a family member or as a patient, were you not frantic? It's loud, people are pressured, there's no time to have long, meaningful conversations, and you're in a crisis. That is not the right time to make your wishes known. So I think one thing that's really important for all of you, start thinking about communicating with family about what you would want in the long range. Would you want to be kept alive on a machine if that's what was required? And then on another note, you have to go in there, you are the consumer, and you need to 
talk to your doctor about what your needs are. Right, so Thanksgiving is right around the corner. It's a great opportunity around the turkey to talk about what you yes. need. Yes. I don't want, I I don't want dialysis, right? but I would like some stuffing. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, I just um, am thinking of a, of a situation um, that I was in recently that, that brings uh, to mind one of the things that Susan's talking about, which is this franticness. And um, I hope that none of you have ever been in a situation with a loved one who has suffered uh, from a cardiac arrest. But th this is a, uh, an incredible experience. Um, it, it is something that, unlike what we see on TV, uh, the, the chances of survival is, are very, very small. Nonetheless, the paramedics come and they, they, they do their thing, and we'll talk a little bit later about how you can stop that from happening if you don't want it to happen, but they do their thing and they intubate you and do CPR and bring you to the emergency room, and, and often the loved one, uh, or usually one person, can go with the, uh, the medics. Um, and you get to the hospital and all of a sudden we extract that loved one from the, the a person who's having the heart attack gets brought in to room 10 or the trauma suite or whatever it's called in the local hospital. The family member ends up sitting outside. And it is the most difficult. I mean, the person who's having CPR doesn't know what's going on. But the family member who's out there uh, is uh, really suffering profoundly. I'd like, before we get to Betty, um, well, actually, why don't we uh, check with Betty. What are your ideas? Um, and perhaps you can talk a little bit about um, what sort of protections in terms of, of forms and, you know, Susan's mentioned this communication, but are there tools that can help us make clearer what our preferences are? Well, I agree very much with Susan that, you know, having forms and having conversations is really important, but what is more important is not necessarily the form. It's not a checklist uh, that says, I want dialysis, I don't want IV antibiotics, I want this, I want that. I think what's really more important is values-based discussions. And so to say, you know, to really pause and say, what is important to you? And so to have a conversation with your partner, you know, with your parent and say, you know, illness comes to all of us at some point in time. You know, what would be important? You know, what is what are really your goals? Uh, so, for example, I work in a cancer hospital, and the goals of care are, are incredibly uh, different. Um, I was with a woman. Uh, I do some research in the area of ovarian cancer, and you know, the face of ovarian cancer has changed because uh, we now have the ability to give second and third line therapies, and so. It's still a poor prognosis, um, and yet many women live for a long time with ovarian cancer. This is a woman who was that day receiving her 100th dose of chemotherapy. And it's, that is a statement about what's happening now in healthcare: is that there is a second option, a third option, a fourth option. Now, we might all say, oh, are you kidding? How horrible. Why would she keep you know, going through this treatment? Well, if you stand next to the bedside of this woman, what she you know, very quickly said is, I'm taking this 100th dose of chemotherapy because my daughter's graduating from high school in May, and I will do anything to live to that day. Mm -hmm. You know, that's very different than if this were the 92-year-old you know, woman who said, I just saw my 22nd grandchild graduate, and you know what I want more than anything in the world is to get out of here and go home and be with my cat. Uh, you know, that's my value. That's my goal. Now, for the woman who says, my daughter's graduating in May, uh, and so, yes, give me more chemotherapy, uh, it's important that we start now by saying, 
you know, what will be the point in time where um, your life would really be intolerable if you continue treatment? Um, and I, we talk with many people who say, you know, the day that I decided to stop treatment of my disease is the day I realized I could no longer hold my grandchild. Because, you know, what, if I'm so fatigued, I can't do that. My life has no meaning. So I think we want to start by having conversations just to let people know that we will need to make decisions. And the more you can talk about what is important to you. Because, and we want to have these conversations over and over again. You know, the woman who just said it's now November, she'd like to live to May. You know, come January, we need to talk to her and say, how's that going? Um, you know, nurses are fabulous at responding to patients' needs. In my 30 years of working in oncology, I've had many a time that a patient said, you know, I, I want to live to Christmas. And then in August, uh, you know, a wise nurse said, bring out the Christmas tree mm -hmm. because we'll have Christmas now. Because why don't we gather all your family and have a last wonderful Christmas in August? Um, because it sounds to me like you would rather spend a wonderful month at home uh, and have Christmas in August than to continue to come spend five days a week in dialysis. And so there are many ways of accomplishing people's life goals. Um, and we need to not believe that the only response to living with illness is a continually... Uh, subjecting you know ourselves to life prolonging therapies. Right. So, so just two um, two follow up points here. Uh, one is this concept of uh, the healthcare team. I think it's incredibly important as as two physicians that we uh, acknowledge quite openly that that we are but bit players in, in this whole area of palliative care and end of life care. It, it is the team of, of social workers and nurses and, and clergy and and, and doctors. Um, and, and junior doctors and, and often medical students who can spend a, a huge amount of time with patients that are really important. My, my second point I'd, I'd like to emphasize is this concept. Uh, how many of you have a durable power of attorney for health care? So I, I, I see uh, over half of you. Um, the, the point that Betty's making is that when you filled out that durable power of attorney for health care here in the state of California, you were asked some very rudimentary questions that, as a doctor, um, will help me almost not at all. I mean, you're not asked. It doesn't tell me anything about your values. It doesn't tell me anything about what you'd really like to do. And I'm making this up, but there may be a million different variations of how I encounter you at the end of life, and you get asked to check one of, of two boxes. So what Betty's talking about when it comes to values is incredibly important that you have those, those discussions not only with someone who's going to be a surrogate decision maker, but that your, your doctor or healthcare provider know where your values are so that they can adjust your care, not based on a, a series of predictable circumstances, but on something that might really happen to you. Mm -hmm. Is that fair? Oh, absolutely. And I think we need to also realize this isn't a checklist. It's not a menu. Sometimes as healthcare providers, I think we approach patients and families and start asking you to make decisions as if we're saying, you know, do you want fries or onion rings? Um, right. Saying, do you want dialysis? Do you want chemotherapy? You know, I don't know. And, and it sort of depends, you know, on what, um, on what things are like today. And so what is important is for people to think about their values, about what's important, to be very clear that, um, that just as you've been in charge of your life and your health, you should be in charge of your death. 
It should be a time not where you give up your, your being as a person and let sort of the machine take over. Um, it should be a time when you are in control of how your life ends. The end of life is a sacred time. And to, uh, I see people all the time. Um, my father w was admitted to the hospital. He was 89 years old. Uh, he had been in a hospital three times in his life, three times in his life. Uh, he fell off a bridge as a construction worker. Um, he uh, got a little dizzy once, and we all panicked, you know, and, and rushed him in. Um, you know, one other little minor, minor hernia. You know, he came to the hospital, and here is a man who had spent 89 years saying, you know, I don't really want to participate, you know, in sort of all this health care. And yet, you know, thrust upon him was the machine of we can do everything. And, and what's wrong with you if you don't want it? You know, we have this whole menu. Um, and so we had to really stop the machine. We had to get the doctors, you know, the residents, we had to get everyone at the table and say, let me tell you about my father. Um, and let me tell you, thank you very much, but these things are really not important to him. Uh, and the best that you can do is to listen to him, respect him, and let's all have a conversation about how his, the last days of his life should honor the last 89 years of his life. That's, exactly. Yeah. But you think about, the, think about the way that a resident or a physician comes into the room and they ask you as you're, you're very ill and they ask you, do you want us to do everything? Well, what is the option? What's the other side of that? Uh, I think I have, this is a trick question. Because I, it's always sounded to me like if I say no, you're going to push me down the ambulance ramp. See ya. So I, I think we have to learn to talk to patients a little bit better. Do you want to die naturally? Do you want to die at home? I'm, mm -hmm. You have to really find out who this person is. And when I go and I see a patient in the ICU, whether they're on a ventilator, if they have a catastrophic brain injury, the first thing I want to know from the family is who is that person in the bed? Sometimes little things like, you know, they might have been a musician. Having music on in the room might soothe them and you watch their pulse go down. Um, you just learn about the person other than a body in the bed. We have to get away from that. And, and we have to let people know who this person is that has been in my life that's very important to me that you are just meeting now in the hospital. I would just add to this conversation, I think the other, another perspective is we need to be incredibly respectful of culture and of diversity. I have had many a conversation over the years with people from the African American community or other incredibly disenfranchised communities who say, you don't understand. We have spent decades fighting to get access to health care and you've just come in the room to ask me to, to say no? You know, are you kidding? Um, and, and so, you know, my perspective as a Caucasian, English-speaking, insured person is not necessarily the perspective of the poor and the homeless, the person who doesn't speak English. We also deal with many people who um, they're, you know, I might say, but, you know, I've been in oncology for 30 years. I know that giving you more chemotherapy when you have pancreatic cancer you know, with liver metastasis and you're imminently dying is not something I would choose. But I need to be open as a healthcare provider to the family who says, 
Only God will decide. Right. I also think it's important um, that, that we recognize that within any, any of these demographic groups, whether it be an economic group, uh, whether it be a racial group, uh, whether it be an educational group, whether it be a generational group, that there is huge diversity. And you can't tell by looking at somebody that they're going to feel a certain way. So that Betty's point um, is well taken there. I'd like to take the liberty of trying something um, uh, with you. Um, I'd like to play uh, a, a bit of, uh, of audio. Um, what you're going to listen to uh, is a, a, a piece of audio that I think will help make clear two points that Betty raised. One, um, th this issue um, that uh, sometimes you want to make your wishes very clear and you want to sit down and tell the doctor who dad is. That's great, but sometimes there's not harmony within the family. And second of all, um, the, the concept uh, that sometimes you, what you want, if you want everything, isn't clear. By, by the way, the, the, Susan's point that uh, uh, what uh, do you want everything done is a difficult question, but it, it also, uh, the thing that drives me even crazier when I'm with re uh, residents and medical students is, is when they say, you know, I'm sorry, Mrs. Jones, we have to tell you that the cancer spread to your brain and there's nothing we can do. Um, you know, clearly the wrong message. Rarely do I tell someone about communication that they've done something wrong. I help them discover a better way, but that is wrong. I mean, there's always something that we can do. You're going to hear this clip. Um, you're in a nursing home, and a, uh, a, a son of a patient who has Alzheimer's disease uh, is just caught up with the uh, physician. So if we can run that tape. Dr. Walling. I've been looking all over for you, calling your office. I paged you all morning. I left messages with your offices for days now. I'm sorry, Mr. Tiller, but it's been very busy. I really haven't had a chance to return my pages. So what can I do for you? No, it's, it's not what you can do for me. It's what you can do for my father. He's hospitalized here against my will. Mr. Tiller, he's got a very bad pneumonia. If it isn't treated aggressively, well, frankly, it could kill him. I know that. But I specifically told the nursing home that I didn't want him transferred to a hospital, no matter what. Even if he got pneumonia or anything else, my father would have seen pneumonia as an answer to his prayers, as an escape from these awful years with Alzheimer's. He never would have wanted this, never. I understand, Mr. Tiller. No, you but don't understand. He didn't want to be kept alive endlessly. And you know very well that in his durable power, I'm the one named as a surrogate decision maker. Now, I couldn't be more clear about this. Look, it's right here in black and white. Surrogate decision maker, Robert Tiller. Person authorized to make all health care decisions, Robert Tiller. Also, look here. If I can no longer react meaningfully with others, I do not wish my life prolonged by any medical intervention. Now, what about this isn't clear? Mr. Tiller, I've been caring for your father for five years. I am well aware that he has a bit of dementia. A bit of dementia? You mean like when you lose your keys or you get lost driving home? My father doesn't even know his own children. He hasn't known who he is or where he is for years now. Okay. He has a profound dementia. But pneumonia is a perfectly curable disease. 
And I'm hopeful we can get him back to his baseline in fairly short order. Oh, you're missing the point entirely. It doesn't matter if it's curable. It's not what he would have wanted to be back to what you call his baseline. The only baseline Dad would want to go back to is how he was ten years ago. I hear you, Mr. Tiller. I, I do hear you. But on my end, it's not that simple. Have you talked to your sister, Anne? She's also called me several times. and Well, let's just say she sees things a bit differently. In fact, she was angry your father got pneumonia. Blamed it on poor care by the nursing home. She wants everything done to bring him back. You do know that, I imagine. Yes. Of course I do. And I can see you're caught in the middle. So I'm sorry I've acted so angry. But she hasn't seen him in well over a month. She's not here twice a week reading to him. And the bottom line is, Dad didn't give her authority to make these decisions. He gave it to me. Because he knew I would represent his wishes best. Is there any way to make myself more clear about what I, what my father wants? Betty, I, I guess, uh, comment as you, as you will, but perhaps you can also address the issue of doing something versus not doing something. Mm -hmm. um, you know, once we've got the ball rolling, how do we stop it? Mm -hmm. I think in the clip that we just listened to, uh, this is not an uncommon thing that we have family members who uh, have conflicting opinions. And as our society ages and our, as our society becomes very mobile, it's really not at all uncommon that, um, that the child comes in. Um, I have lived the last 20 years in California, but before that in the Midwest, and so we always referred to the crazy daughter from California, you know, who, uh, <laughs> who flew in to, uh, to sort of, you know, interrupt the care. And um, so it, this is not a, an uncommon situation. What I would point out, though, in that scenario is that sometimes we as healthcare providers get embroiled in these family dynamics. And what we disregard in that conversation is that it really should not be about you know the son and the daughter the prevailing issue here is that this is a man who designated his son as the decision maker and who made it very clear in fact in writing that he did not want his life prolonged now these are still complex things because as you as we heard in that video well pneumonia is still treatable and so this is where sometimes, you know, there are very gray areas. But, but what is important is that we always remember that the patient voice is the voice that is most important. This is also, you know, a very good uh, example of why good end-of-life care is incredibly interdisciplinary. When we have families who are in conflict, often what we need to do is to get the family members at the same table and to involve a social worker, a chaplain. We need to find out why is it, instead of just let's come, you know, let's all take sides. Who, who's going to take the daughter's side? Who's going to take the son's side? And often the patient gets left out. But we need to find out why is it that the daughter um, wants this pneumonia treated? You know, 
there could be many, many reasons. You know, maybe the daughter doesn't really understand um, the treatment. Maybe the daughter feels incredibly guilty because when her mother died a year ago, um, she felt that she wasn't present. You know, maybe this daughter has recently been told that she too has been diagnosed with an early onset of Alzheimer's and her fear is her own fear of her own death. And mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. um, so rather than just saying, you know, who's right and wrong, uh, let's call a lawyer or an ethics consult, what we often need to do is to stop and talk with people about why they're making the decisions that they are. Excellent. Susan? This is something that we come across pretty frequently because let's face it, family dysfunction reigns in crisis. You know, never seen fam most families crumble under this pressure. It's immense. And so um, one thing that comes to my mind is the whole concept of palliative care. How many of you know what a palliative care service is? It's a, you know, it's a relatively, relatively new kind of um, care and the benefit of a palliative care service coming in to help the primary team with the patient is because we can do exactly what Betty is talking about. We have the physician, we have the nurse, we have a social worker, a chaplain, and we tackle the whole case using everybody's skill set and we don't just, it's not just a patient that we're treating, it's a family. We recognize that the family is the patient as well. So we have a lot of work to do and we have to do all our work on everybody. Um, and family members and caregivers are huge victims in these situations. Many of you have been caregivers. We understand that caregivers get very sick. There's a lot of good research that shows the impact of caregiving and complicated grief. So it's not a small thing being a caregiver. So we take that very serious. Um, the other thing that came to my mind, there was a, a great piece written by a colleague of ours about persistent requests for CPR, but you could apply it to anything, and it's much of what Betty is discussed, discussing, um, that it, it boils down to three emotions of hope, fear, and guilt. And if you can address or go through each of those different variables that might be impacting this decision, you usually can get a consensus with the family. You have to get them away from it's all about me and how I feel right now back to the patient and get everything up on the table. And then the other important point here is, okay, sometimes things happen and paramedics don't have the advanced directive and they go ahead and they put the tube in and they do the chest compressions and it's a big disaster. But that is not to say that we cannot turn around, whoa, slow down, and let's take all of this off. And in ethics, withholding and withdrawing life-sustaining treatments are equivalent. Just because it's done, it doesn't mean it has to stay. So if you find yourself in the position, it's perfectly acceptable. You intubated, that was a no-no, that's not what we wanted, I want it off. Right. So it, it is, again, uh, to emphasize that they are moral an ethical uh, equivalence, uh, not starting something and withdrawing something. I, I think I would add to that. I think there's a real need, though, uh, for some militancy on the part of consumers, because sadly, mm -hmm. even if you have, you know, you walk into the door of the hospital with, you know, 20 copies of your clear advance directive saying, I do not want these things, and your entire family is in agreement, sadly, 
there are, it is not uncommon that once inside the hospital machine or the healthcare machine, um, there are, there's a long line of people who, who tend to then disregard your directive and say, oh, but, you know, we can fix that, or let's just try a little of this, or let's try a little of that. And I think that as a consumer group, as a society, it's time for us to stand up and say, that is unacceptable. It is outrageous. And, uh, and not just, you know, be so patient because our wishes are often disregarded. You know, healthcare systems, physicians, nurses, you know, others have been trained that we know better than you do about your bodies. And so, you know, we will do the right thing. And, and so there's also just, you know, some very unacceptable, inappropriate, unethical, outrageous actions that happen in healthcare. And people need uh, to step up and say, you know, don't do this. There's also, well, there's also the issue, I'm going to go back to the being a patient. And when you get in the room with the doctor, what happens? I know here I was a doctor, deathly ill, and the doctor comes in the room and you all, your IQ just dropped 100 points and you can't say anything. Mm-hmm. So it's always good to have somebody with you with questions and the things that you want to get across, especially if it's somebody that's running in and out. You need to put it up there and have somebody with you that can advocate for you. And that's one thing I see over and over. I see these poor patients that were pretty much like myself coming in so sick and frail, and and they don't have the wherewithal, the energy to get it out in time for somebody who's going to come in, okay, what are your vital signs? Are you having pain? See you later. Bye. Oh, are you constipated? Oh, yeah. Okay, see you later. Bye. And the more, the sicker you are, the, the less the doctors will come in because they don't know what to say and they it's don't want to talk to you. So it's the exact opposite of what you would intuit if you were to say, well, the, the doctor is going to spend more time with the, uh, the, the sicker patient. I am a little encouraged about um, the um, Assembly Bill 3000, which one of the problems with advanced directives has been that we don't know where the forms are and they don't spell out exactly what's what we would want and so there is a new thing that's being rolled it's not new it actually was started in Oregon and it's called the pulsed form and um, basically it's a bright pink form and hopefully it will go in bracelet form but in Oregon it's really helped in these situations where people have been resuscitated against their wishes the paramedics know where to look for it it's a physician's order and so hopefully this is being rolled out and it's now mandated. And um, it's California Healthcare Foundation is actually doing a lot of community work right now and supporting um, demonstration projects to get it out through California. But it's, if you go to, I believe it's post, P-O-L-S-T dot org, there's a lot of information and your physician writes the order just like they would for pain medicine. I, th- I think we should... Uh turn uh, to some of your questions. There's lots that we haven't covered in in all of these arenas, but um, I'm quite curious to hear what brought you out on a Wednesday night to talk about death. Um, I don't know if you want to choose. uh... Good evening, folks. We'll now begin our Q&A portion of our discussion tonight. We want to remind you that this is being recorded for podcasts, so all questions must be asked into the microphone. And please remember to state your first and last name before your question. And also at this time, our donation buckets are going to be going around, and we do appreciate any and all of your support. Do we have questions? 
Uh, Todd Kerner, thank you for this uh, fascinating discussion. A question for the panel. How do you define death? And should the government have a definition that is national of what death is? Okay, so before we get to the panelists, uh, the context, I assume, for Todd's question is Mr. Brody. Um, I, I'm assuming that's what you're referring to. Uh, for those of you that don't know, uh, Mr. Brody is a 12-year-old seventh grader who um, about a week ago uh, was uh, pronounced uh, brain dead at uh, a hospital uh, in Washington, D.C. His family are, are very religious uh, Hasidic Jews, and when he was pronounced brain dead, he was on a respirator. And the respirator provided uh, air so that his chest would expand and contract with each respiration. And according to some teachings in the Jewish religion, as long as someone's breathing, they can't be dead. So they have, the family has just gone to the Superior Court in Washington, D.C. Uh, to, to challenge the hospital. The hospital wants to disconnect the life support from this young boy because he's brain dead. There's absolutely nothing there, and that's the way it's been now for a week. The family's asked the court to intervene, and this has gotten to be a, a very big national deal. This is very different, by the way, from the Quinlan case uh, or the Terry Schiavo case, which involved persistent vegetative state. This is a kid who is unequivocally brain dead. So the, the question that Todd asks to either one of you is how do we define death and should there be a national uh, definition? I would respond by saying I hope not because the moment that we begin to, uh, to think that we can come up with the standard definition and therefore because you know four judges or eight experts in the field say death is X that everyone in America uh, should accept it, I think that's a step backwards not forwards. I think we should, we should realize that issues surrounding end-of-life care and death, whatever you know, that term may be defined, um, can absolutely, perhaps we can come up with a physiologic explanation that says you know, at a cellular level what constitutes death, but that does not mean um, that there are incredibly different definitions about the end-of-life. And so to think that if we had a standard definition and therefore if we said death is X, then this, you know, difficult Jewish family should just get with the program and read the <laughs> definition and unplug the ventilator. That is not respectful care. Um, I think we need to be, uh, do all that we can to promote respectful, competent, compassionate care at the end of life. But I think that more important is that we need to recognize that the value of life and death is incredibly diverse and that we should not be so, um, you know, so quick to rush that this, remember, you know, I, I don't know the particulars of this case, but what I would say is if we as healthcare providers are entering into this room and saying, you know, here are all the reasons why this ventilator should be stopped and here are all the reasons why your son is really dead and we disregard that um, that this is a family who, for the last 12 years, have had this, you know, that this is their child, and for whom multiple generations, the beliefs and the values of their faith uh, are being tested. Um, we should be very cautious about these things. What I would hope instead is that we find a way to work with that family so that we can do the best for this child 
and for this family and be very, very respectful and mindful um, that, that what we do matters. And if that, uh, that may take conversation, it might take resources, it might take a lot of things, but uh, being quick to have a template that says all care should happen in a certain way, I think is very, very dangerous. I think we'll take a second question rather than having Susan come in. Uh, my name is Linda Fenton, and my question is, is what have you learned, I guess, um, what is the new science or what do you have to offer patients to relieve the anxiety and fear of, of death um, when you're dealing with the elderly or parents or even your own, your own sense of mortality? Is there anything that, that you guys have learned over the course of the last 20 years about how, what the best way to face that is? for individuals and families? Um, okay. Um, that's a great question. And um, I think that being able, this is gonna sound a little simplistic, but step one, being able to talk about it. It's been so taboo to use the big D death word. Being able to talk, express your fears um, to your family and have support. Um, once again, using the services of a palliative care team where you can get the support that you need to help you, getting in-home services, those are some of the things. We've learned a lot, even in the last year, about things like acupuncture, um, in the last several years about relaxation techniques. So, um, and, and once again, getting back to spirituality, really rethinking and working through your own spirituality. So I think um, really it sounds so simple, but really it's the talking process and working through your anxieties. A lot of people that I meet with, a lot of patients, and I've been there myself, the biggest fear is I'm afraid I'm going to be in pain. I'm afraid I'm going to suffocate. That's what scares us the most, isn't it, about the actual process of dying? So is because there after you die, you're already dead. What? Is there pain that we can't treat? No. So there, we Absolutely have not. For any we pain. have treatment now for any type of pain. We can even sedate patients if they need a rest for a couple days. I've had to put patients in the hospital for a couple days for sedation, for periods of rest. So there's so much we can do that's, you know, it's all out there. And I haven't had a patient yet that I've not been able to help them be comfortable and be relaxed. So, so why is it, Susan, that, that so many patients die in pain? And that is a great question. The um, people die in pain because of, number one, ignorance of health care providers and not asking for help. Um, one of the cases was so bad, it was so bad of a gentleman up in the Bay Area that died in extreme pain um, he was screaming out in the intensive care unit, and the surgeon gave him minuscule doses of pain relief, and the family sued, and they won. And now all physicians in California are required to do a certain amount of education on pain management. So, so for those because they couldn't figure it out, you know, they had to be mandated to do it. That's the Wendland case. Yes. Right. The, 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 uh, so ignorance is, is clearly number one. Um, I think that number two uh, w would be uh, fear. And you would not believe how often I hear doctors say, we don't want to get the person addicted, or this is yes. addictive. 
You know, we're talking about people at the end of life. I've even had, I had one patient that watched Oprah one day, and the nurses called me to her bed, and I said, why aren't you taking your pain medicine? You have pancreatic cancer. I saw Oprah, and there are problems with addiction. So there's a lot of taboos with opioids. And doctors are just, they're just. We're terrible. We're horrible at this. Question to your far right. Giovanni Cucchiaro. And then <clears throat> I'm wondering what's your position with respect to stopping nutrition and hydration? Excellent. Uh, Betty, you want to take that? Sure. Um, the issues of when we stop to hydrate patients or feed patients becomes most important when uh, where there are clinical situations where the patient can no longer you know, eat or drink themselves. And so families routinely uh, are in the situation of having to make a decision. Do you want us to start tube feedings? Do you want us to give IV fluids? So do you want us to provide the nutrition hydration? So we start by recognizing that in our society, uh, this is not just a medical biological decision. This becomes an enormous you know, human decision and a decision that has incredible value. Because when I say to you, oh, your mother is very ill, would you like us to feed your mother? You know, immediately, you know, most family members say, well, of course, you know, mother has fed all of us all of our lives. And so feeding, you know, nutrition and hydration have a connotation in our society about caring. And, and because we care for someone, of course, we would want that. So the first fatal flaw is that when we ask families to make decisions, you know, do you want, do you want us to feed your mother or your grandmother? Because to say no to that decision sounds like it's a, a statement about I don't care. Uh, the second problem is it's very similar to many other health decisions that we ask families to make. You know, do you want, do you want this? Do you want that? Um, we always imply the good that might come from it but we don't really talk about the bad that might come from it. And so in much of our teaching, um, my, one of my major projects is teaching nurses um, how to work with families in long-term care settings, in nursing homes. And so what we teach the nurses or the physicians to do is at the same time you say, would you like us to start you know, tube feedings on your 92-year-old mother? We need to explain that, yes, by starting these tube feedings, it might prolong her life for a matter of you know, weeks or months. But also doing this, starting tube feedings, might create a lot of problems. For example, it often with tube feedings, there's a lot of intolerance and incredible diarrhea. And what would it be like for your mother to have diarrhea constantly? Or there's a possibility that in giving tube feedings, she might aspirate that feeding. It might go in her lung and it might create a pneumonia. So if instead of just saying, do you want us to feed your mother, which then leads to a family often making a decision that they don't really understand, um, if we sit down and explain, you know, what are the good things that might happen, what are the bad things that might happen, and help people understand what are the alternatives. You know, instead of starting tube feedings on your mother, here's something that we could do. We could have the palliative care team come in and make some recommendations about how we can best support your mother in what now will probably be only the last three weeks of her life. Um, also, instead of putting families in a situation of do you want A or B, do you want feeding or no feeding, do you want IV antibiotics or none, um, what we should do is step back and say, you know, what can we do? 
Um, what, what can we do to make these last weeks of your mother's life meaningful for you and your family? And that's a very, very different conversation. And so once again, the worst hazard, uh, I think, is to say we should always do tube feedings or we should never do tube feedings for someone is ill. Instead, we have to say, what is the goal of the care? And what are the benefits and the burdens? Let's weigh those things out. Let's have an opportunity to have a conversation and make sure you know the implications and then make a decision that best honors the person that you love. I just think of, I think of this, um, I had a friend and she died of ovarian cancer. She was about 30 years old, school teacher. And this is where I started learning a little bit about hospice care before I started working hospice. And I pushed food at her and pushed food at her. I went to Jamba Juice, I went to Ben and Jerry's. I tried to push so much food in her and eventually I would come to learn about cancer and with end stage cancer you lose your sense of hunger. And so I think it's a lot of pressure also that we're putting on our friends and relatives in their end stage. If they don't feel like eating, we shouldn't be forcing because Really, you're feeding the cancer, you're feeding the tumor, and it's creating a lot of pressure. Next question. Yeah, we have a question up in the middle here, and this will be our final question of the night. If you have any further questions, you can speak to our guests out in the reception. Thank you. Hi, Lindy Lind. Um, is there anything more current um, than Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in looking at literature for coping with death and dying? Uh, so I can start by commenting. Is that yeah. okay? Please. So many people, you know, knew of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, her work in the 1960s, and what I think most people don't pause to recognize is the most valuable thing that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross did was started the conversation. Um, and the way that her work started was she was in a thousand-bed hospital in Chicago, and she said, "I want to help these chaplains talk to dying patients." And what happened is. Everyone she went to said, there's no one dying in this hospital. Um, and so she realized, wow, you know, how can we possibly help improve care when people say it doesn't exist? And so the most important contribution that we should always be eternally grateful for is she said the word death. And she said it over and over again. And she woke the public up to say we should talk about death. Um, she also talked about stages of dying, which was also incredibly useful to start our awareness. Um, and often people mistook her work and said, and thought that she meant you had to do these five things in order. You needed to be in denial, and then you needed, you know, to bargain. And you, and you remember, you can't do step three without step four. And we've got to get you to acceptance, you know, within the next week, um, or we've all failed. And uh, and and she never meant that. You know, it was we who misinterpreted. Um, so, so what is there now? Well, I can tell you that if, if any of you go home tonight and you go to your computer and you Google, you know, death and dying or palliative care, you will find thousands and thousands of, of actually quite useful resources um, that talk about now, you know, this cultural change. And there, there are wonderful resources, you know, books, uh, film, um, they're, they're wonderful ways. But I think community forums, going back to your, you know, your temples, your schools, your community centers, your parents' meetings, and talk about, um, about this issue is, is really a very important thing. We have transformed the way childbirth happens in this country. We have transformed it. When I was born, my father 
You know, my mother came to the hospital. My father was left in the waiting room. My mother was taken into a delivery room. She was given anesthesia. You know, six hours later, someone woke her up. She was incredibly nauseous. You know, she vomited. Um, and somebody said, oh, by the way, you had a girl. Um, and we called that great health care. Um, you know, eight weeks ago, my daughter had a baby. It was the most wonderful, respectful, incredible experience of all time. Um, no one got left in the waiting room. Uh, people realized this was a sacred moment, not a medical event. She was awake and alert. Um, it, you know, her care was respected, you know, the physical needs, but the social, the family, spiritual needs. If we can transform childbirth, if we can transform the beginning of life, we can transform the end I, of I life. I think it's only fair, though, Betty, to, to remind the group that really we haven't transformed it. We've just gone back. I mean, right, that's where exactly. we're starting. To be. Right, that's and the, right. the same with death and dying. It, you right. know, it wasn't very long ago when, when right. mom or Aunt Millie right. or whatever died in the living room and we sure. were all around. Right. So, you right. know, while it is transformative, um, it, it is to remember that, you know, sort of all of, of life is a circle and we, we are now just learning the lessons that our parents and great grandparents learned. Uh, um, last, uh, if you want to say something closing, Susan, we're about out of time. I would just like to um, encourage all of you to have these discussions around that turkey. Um, and to really, you know, when you go into the hospital, you are the consumer. And, you know, I think that healthcare teams are a little bit better. We're working on it every day. Um, a recent report just showed that palliative care is in, has increased. It's in one in every four to five hospitals right now and it will add a tremendous amount of support and good clinical care to you or your loved one's care, and you should ask for that because it is there, and I, I know you'll be happy with it because I know I am. In closing, I just want to mention, um, you know, we're here in Los Angeles, and it's, it's often easy to forget that we've got giants, and, and the two women here are, are really, take it from me, giants in this field. They both have pushed the envelope um, in terms of our thinking, in terms of patient care, and it's been an honor to sit here with both of them. So I thank you, and uh, thank you for coming. Thank you.